catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Mary Trump Show. I am really excited to welcome Jason Kander, former Army captain, the first millennial elected to statewide office as Secretary of State of Missouri, founder of Let America Vote, president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, and author most recently of the New York Times bestseller, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Jason, it is so great to have you. How are you doing? Uh, I am great, and it's so great to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, I've I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time uh, just about your experiences in general, and then you wrote this uh, profoundly important and profound book. Um, you know, like many, many Americans, I was familiar with your story and uh, your work in politics and then um, what happened after your decision to step away from politics and you know, the story, your story in general resonated with me um, at the most basic level because I also have PTSD. And uh, it is, as you know, um, always sort of validating to hear somebody else's ex mm -hmm. experiences. Uh, but in this book, you take that to a completely other level um, because it is so honest and uh, you allow yourself in it to be so vulnerable to us that, um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about the, the process of writing it and also um, how, the, the, I guess, the aftermath of the book, uh, especially in the context of COVID, uh, which, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, has created a mental health crisis, the likes of which we, I don't think we've seen in this country. So I, I just wanted to start there with you, uh, the process of writing the book and uh, how how the aftermath of it has has been for you. Yeah, um, thank you. I, You know, the, the process of writing the book is really interesting and uh, difficult for all the right reasons. Um, you know, the obvious stuff, I mean, it's, it's difficult to write about your trauma. Um, Interestingly, it was not that difficult for me to write about what the majority of the book is about, which is, you know, going through, uh, you know, the 10 years that I did without you know, being diagnosed and not realizing mm -hmm. that I had PTSD. Um, and also, it wasn't difficult to write about going through therapy, um, because neither of those was traumatic for me. Um, mm -hmm. And so, for me, the hardest part of the book to write was the one chapter that's really set in Afghanistan. And, and it was really purposeful only setting one chapter of the book in Afghanistan because, you know, like I know that there is a genre out there. I know that there is an audience for the books that are on the shelves of 50 to 75 year old, you know, men in America that are written by like Tom Clancy war books. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I 
I didn't just want to write for that audience. I wanted to write for a larger audience and for people, whether they'd experienced trauma in the military or otherwise. So the process of writing the book, what, what made it hard was I wanted to make sure that I could make it something that people, whether they had had mental health struggles or not, could understand and relate to. And if I just told the story using the vocabulary and the lexicon that I had gained in therapy, which is where you are in the third act of the book, then people aren't going to connect with it, right? Like if I'm talking right. about hypervigilance, right. you know, if you haven't been to therapy, you're like, what is that? But if I'm explaining, mm -hmm. well, I felt like I was in danger all the time. And I felt like the world was a very dangerous place and everybody was naive to this danger. Well, that's maybe easier for people to digest. So that was a challenge, but one that I'm glad I took on. Uh, and then, you know, sort of the, the time period that the book ended up coming out in, you know, I did not intend to write a book about national trauma or about like how to deal with it. But what I did intend to do was write a book about the experience of trauma and facing your trauma and what that could lead to post-traumatic growth. And it turns out that between, you know, COVID, like you mentioned, uh, violence, whether it's, you know, across the world uh, or, or here at parades and grocery stores and schools, or just the basic just experience of watching the news in 2022, <laughs> uh, I have found that a lot of people have responded to that part of the book in a big, that, that usefulness of the book in that way. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating uh, to see your assessment of that in, in real time, not, not as you're writing it, but as you're experiencing your life post-trauma and not realizing just what you were going through. And I think that is, um, common among people who end up being diagnosed with PTSD, you need somebody outside of you mm -hmm. to say, uh, that might've been normal for you, or you might think that that wasn't a big deal, but holy cow. <laughs> I mean, the fact that a, a human being could not, not simply survive it and then thrive afterwards, but then deny uh, the significance of it. That was something that was incredibly powerful for me in reading your book um, because there were so many uh, mechanisms in place to, to prop that uh, myth you had about your experience up. Is that, is that fair to say? No, absolutely. I mean, it, some of this is, is specific to the military, but it really, it can be extrapolated to all of us, right? It's just the military sort of perfected this idea of teaching you that whatever you're going through is no big deal compared to what other people are going through. And, and, but there's a practical reason for it, right? Like yeah. for me, I'm going into meetings with people who it might be a trap. They may want to kill me and there's nobody to come and, you know, save me because they don't know where I am. This is in Afghanistan as an intelligence officer. But I, I'm also getting a steady drumbeat all the way through, as is every soldier of, well, this is no big deal compared to this person, compared to right. that person. It's very valuable to me in the job because it's how I go into the next meeting, even with the conscious knowledge that I might not get out of the next meeting with these unsavory characters. Well, you know, if, if you extrapolate that to uh, the rest of, of you know, life in America. It's, it's what we talked about a moment ago. It's, you know, I haven't, I haven't been sleeping. I've been irritable. 
but it can't be that I saw the news about Uvalde, uh, you know, on TV because I wasn't affected by that. I wasn't there. So I'm not going to grant that to myself. And then at a, at a higher level in our politics, and this is something that I didn't get into into the book, but I really have sort of come to understand during the conversations I've had during this book tour at a higher level, I feel like the avoidance that I learned about in therapy that I had been engaging in for myself for so many years, avoiding my own disruptive memories and, and thoughts and emotions through activity and staying busy and everything. Well, I, when I look at that and I compare it to what we do after a school shooting, for instance, the way a certain segment of the population says like, it comes up with various ways that they're not going to confront those emotions on the extreme end. It's that didn't happen. That's not real on the, you know, and then the lesser end is, well, uh, you know, we're going to talk about whether doors were left locked or unlocked. And then it's, and then there are also folks who are just like, I know that this is a big problem. I know something needs to be done about it. I'm voting that way, but I, I, I'm not going to do more. I can't face that whether they consciously say that to themselves or not. In our politics, we, we do at this point a lot of avoidance nationally, and I think it is a big part of why we don't deal with each other and deal with our problems. And that avoidance uh, creates the space to repeat patterns. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think we're having such a difficult time moving beyond this very trying uh, political moment and historical moment we're living in. Um, but it's also why we sort of double down on, uh, the need to, I guess, cast things in such a light that we normalize them, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is a version of, of what you were saying. And that then kind of gives other, per other people permission to join us in that. And I think the the story of you and your wife and how you went through all of this together and very separately uh, was incredibly moving. And in a way, I, I don't want to stretch the point too much, but it, it was sort of a metaphor <laughs> in my mind for America now, because we've been so divided and so separated and isolated from each other. Um, in some ways, uh, because we're, we're at cross purposes, but in other ways, because we're all, uh, we're all on the same side, but, uh, you know, we think the best way to get through it together is to enable each other, uh, to avoid dealing with the, the hard stuff just so we can get through the day. And I think, um, Diana's narration in the book was extremely powerful. Uh, so is that how you both, I mean, it seems like you both experienced it that way. Um, not in the moment, because again, we're just going through the motions and we're just trying to get through it, the hard stuff. Uh, but as you're writing the book and, and creating this narrative of your lives retrospectively, um, that, it seemed that what what had been your strengths as a couple uh, ended up being weaknesses uh, because you weren't able to adapt to the, the the really traumatic situations you were both dealing with separately. Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. And Mary, to me, what, my favorite aspect of the book is my wife Diana's. Uh, contributions to the book, you know. Um, yeah, it's actually so. it's it's amazing, and you guys should also, in, in addition to reading it, you should listen to it as well. Yeah, I mean, because she, you're right, she narrates her parts. And, and you know, for those who haven't read it, it's 
each chapter, there's a, about a two page passage written in the first person by Diana. And it often uh, presents, it always presents a different perspective on what was going on than mine, but it in, in some cases presents a conflicting perspective. She jokingly refers to her parts in the book as her rebuttals. And, <laughs> and, and to, to your, you know, to me, that's my favorite part because, you know, I'm not the only best-selling author in the family. My wife is very talented. Uh, and also because it presents this concept of post of secondary post-traumatic stress that we were not aware right. of when I went into therapy and most people aren't. But the other thing about it is, is that what it does is it does demonstrate what you're talking about, which is that trauma can drive us apart. And, and when, when we, and when we don't realize it, and we think we're at odds. And when in reality, we're both going after the same thing. And what we have to do is talk. And I do think we didn't intend it this way, but I do think it's a metaphor for the country in a lot of ways, because we are going through these repeated national traumas. And, you know, politicians say all the time, I used to say it as a politician, what we've got to do is we've got to come together around our shared values. Yes, that's true. But we also at a, at a more achievable level first, have to come together. It doesn't even have to be around policy. When I, I, you know, I live in Kansas City. I live in the middle of the country. I have very good friends uh, who whose politics are the complete other end of the spectrum of mine. And, you know, there's not a lot of people probably who are as active as I am in national politics who have friendships with people who genuinely really disagree with me about everything. Right. And it is a virtue of living here in the middle of the country. And yeah. what is always interesting to me about those conversations is, is that if we can go back and forth over and over again about what we disagree about and all that, but when you go a little deeper, our fears are so similar. We're afraid of different things, but our fears are similar. I got a friend who has told me he's really worried about the future of the country and what it's going to mean for his kids. Now, his next sentence is about, you know, stuff he'll call like out of control wokeism and all this stuff that they feed him on Fox News. But at a basic level, he and I both have a fear of what the country is turning into for the future. And when he and I talk about that, we make a lot more progress and can find a lot more common ground. And that opens the door for us to, to talk about politics in ways where we can come to agreement on things in ways people wouldn't expect. And just like in a marriage where we, we were going through this trauma, we were scared and it was driving us apart. Well, it wasn't until I started to get treatment and she started to get treatment that we developed the tools to talk not about the stuff we disagreed with, but to talk about what we were feeling, to be curious about those emotions. That's when we came back together. And the book ultimately is a love story, uh, which is my favorite part of it. Yeah, it is. And you two are, are real partners. And I think it's because of that strong foundation you had that you were able to no, I, I don't want to say weather to the storm. It was 11 years. It yeah. wasn't like this, you know, two or three day hurricane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was well, 11 we, well, and we didn't even know we were like in a storm for 10 years. We just thought, right. you know, I don't know. We just were like, just go, go, go. This is what life is. And it, yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's the, le one of the many lessons is that sometimes um, falling back on your ambition is not the way to go uh, right. because it makes it kind of difficult to address anything or change the subject. Well, falling back on, I mean, you can, re you can replace ambition there with anything. I mean, that was right. one exactly. of my other big goals in the book, right? Is that I didn't want anybody to like, I was aware that I could write a book 
about trauma and get a large group of people to read it and, and find out about post-traumatic growth and learn what I had learned. But I was aware that the way to do that and the unique opportunity I had was I was certainly, you know, uh, this goes without saying anymore. I was, cer I'm certainly not the only person to run for president while having a secret psychological disorder, <laughs> uh, obviously, but sorry, that was hysterical, <laughs> but I'm and the sad, actually. and sad, um, but I'm the only one in history who's cop to it and talked right. about it. And that gave me an opportunity to, I knew, knew that if I told that story for the first two acts, then I could, I could get people to be really invested in the third act, which was, and here's what therapy was like, and here's what I gained out of it, uh, which is what I really wanted to relay to people, right? And so um, I guess my point here is that what I didn't want in doing that was anybody to read it and go, okay, but you know, I did this and Cantor didn't do that, so what the heck's wrong with me? So yeah. when you say, don't you know, just rely on your ambition, to me, you can fill in the blank. Don't just right. rely on substances. Don't just rely on whatever it is right. that I was fortunate that what was in front of me and available to me as a self-medicating coping mechanism avoidance strategy, which are all words I didn't have for 11 years, right. was my career. Yep. But I try to be really clear with people about the fact that if I hadn't had that opportunity and what was in front of me was cocaine, then this could easily be a book about that. And, That's right. And there, there should be no judgment by me of anybody who turned to that instead. You know, it's a, a, an addiction yeah. for avoiding yourself is an addiction for avoiding yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I was speaking specifically to your experience and your wife's, you know, you right. had, you, you know, one of your early bonds was you two. Uh, had the ambition of wanting to make the world a better place and being of service and which you both mm -hmm. have been and continue to be, but it, it took on an outsized role. And one of the incredibly important things you do in the book was put it in the terms of addiction and, uh, you know, your concerns, uh, after being in therapy for a while of going back into the media, is it going to give you that same kind of rush? And after it's over, are you going to have the same kind of crash? Uh, so you did put it in the terms of addiction, mm -hmm. which which does invite people to to see their own experiences non judgmentally through that lens. And and you you give all of us a vocabulary which many many people hadn't had before. Uh, so I Thanks. think that helps create the space to have a discussion. Um, because again, if we think about, uh, and how can we not think about it? It's like all we talk about is, you know, the trauma this country's gone yeah. through for the last, well, I say six, but certainly a two, uh, two mm -hmm. years. And it isn't just COVID, uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's the uh, economic crisis, it's the harrowing political crisis that continues to worsen, uh, I think. Yeah. And, you know, when, when people are, um, are faced with that kind of onslaught, right? Uh, I said, it's, it's very difficult to deal with your trauma or heal your trauma while you're constantly being traumatized, <laughs> but you know, you can find space to do that. And as you demonstrate, like the first step to that is, is allowing yourself, um, to admit that you're struggling. Mm -hmm. And I think 
a lot of people don't even allow for that. I remember at the beginning of COVID, friends of mine who were able to work from home, whatever, they would start to talk about how terrified they were. And they'd say, well, you know, so many people have it worse than I do, which sounds familiar, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. So, yeah. right. And, well, and that's the thing is like, I went a lot of years thinking I could rank my trauma out of existence, right? right. Like what I thought I was doing was I thought I was giving myself perspective, right? right? So, so I, you know, I was struggling with night terrors. I was struggling with this hypervigilance, this feeling of being in danger all the time and self-loathing eventually and, and, and depression and, and, you know, some other fun stuff. But I would say to myself, uh, well, you know, I didn't get physically wounded, right? Like I had, yep. I, you know, I had a friend who had come home and, and had taken his own life. I had, uh, you know, a friend, uh, a guy I had served with, uh, who had, um, you know, been shot by a sniper and yep. was forever changed. And, and so I thought what I was doing was saying to myself, well, you're not like those guys, you know, but what I was really saying to myself was you have no right to treat any of this or think of any of this as trauma because because you know people, so many people who have had it so much worse. Or in my case, because I did one deployment, it was, you know, you have friends who have done so much more. You have friends who are still doing it and you're not. Yep. You know, when I was going through stressful things that were exacerbating my own uh, trauma, it was, what are, you know, so what you might lose an election. Like, who are you to think of that as, as something that needs to be addressed, you know, in your mental health? Like, come on, you know, suck it up and drive on like a soldier would, would say. Right. And, um, and that's the thing is like, I didn't actually gain any perspective and I didn't diminish my trauma by trying to rank it against other people's trauma. All I did was delay my opportunity to heal. And, you know, trauma doesn't get better with time. It actually gets worse with time. So it's why in the book, I compare it to a physical injury. You know, yep. if, if I had, tried, you know, I, I had hurt my knee right before I went into the army. Right. And, and yep. then I ended up having to get surgery, physical therapy. But what I did with my brain after I got out of the army or after I got home from Afghanistan was as if I had gone into the army without ever getting the surgery or the physical therapy on my knee. And I was like, I'm just going to tough it out. Well, by the time, first of all, I wouldn't have been able to make it, but if I'd had, you know, my leg would be mangled. Right. But that's what I did with my brain. I'm, I'm going to yep. walk it off. And after a while, it just got worse and so much worse than it needed to be. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, on the one hand, that's kind of a testament to what a lousy job we do in the West of, uh, helping people understand and deal with, uh, mental illness. You know, we have this really crazy idea that mental health and physical health are two completely separate things right. and that, uh, mental health is either mental health is a luxury or mental illness is eh, kind of a character flaw perhaps. Right. Uh, and it's very dangerous, especially when we're dealing, de dealing with this on, on a mass scale. And one of the services you do is, is, you know, what you just said, you, you help people understand that it's, it is not a competition and, uh, you know, it's not about that. You can, you can get PTSD by being in a horrible, uh, life-threatening accident, or you can get it by watching one. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it just depends on, depends on all sorts of variables, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and in fact, it sort of reminds me of one of my life mottos is don't live your life comparatively, uh, because you can right. never win, uh, that kind of contest. Um, so I, I think that it, you do help people, um, 
I don't want to say, well, yeah, normalize. Uh, not that it's normal or, uh, you know, it, not that that trauma should be normalized. Uh, it obviously needs to be treated. But the experience mm-hmm. needs to be normalized and, and any kind of shame needs to be taken out of the equation. And one of the things that I think is so instrumental uh, is and I think I mentioned this at the, the beginning, is how vulnerable you allow yourself to be so publicly. Uh, because that takes an enormous amount of courage. You know, sucking it up and pretending everything's fine, that's that's not courage. <laughs> Facing it and being vulnerable in front of people when you know you might be judged by a lot of that takes courage. Oh, I, I appreciate it. You know, um, I think for me, once I had made the decision in October of 2018 that I was, you know, going to be public about why I was stepping away from public life and, and had made that decision that, you know, I would tell people that I had had suicidal thoughts and that I was struggling with PTSD. You know, once I made the decision to be public about that, after that, it, it kind of broke the seal, right? And so um, obviously there are parts of the book that were, are, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a memoir by somebody from politics where they don't like come off great on every page, which is unique, right? Usually it's it like is. a campaign pamphlet where you're like, that's every right. page is, and that's why I'd like to get your vote. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing it did for me, honestly, is that, and part of the incentive, if there was, an, if there was a selfish incentive for me, or I guess more like if there was a bonus for me, was that once you make an announcement like that, and you tell people, hey, I've had suicidal thoughts. I'm going to go get help for this. If you don't tell people the rest of the story, everybody you encounter who doesn't know you really well after that kind of just assumes that you're continuously at rock bottom. And, right. and so it is a strange feeling to like to go through therapy, to, to reach a stage of post-traumatic growth, to really be living a, a very happy life, which is where I am now, and be able to feel this sort of projected uh, sympathy, it's confusing, to be honest, mm-hmm. at times. And and so I guess for me, what I got out of all of it was, if I could tell people the whole story, it, you know, obviously the main objective was, this is the book that I wish had existed 14 years ago when I got right. home, and I knew I could help a lot of people. But what I got out of it was, you know, the the other parents um, uh, of the kid of the kids on the Little League team, my son's Little League team that I coach, the the people who I deal with every day in my life, if they read the book, then I know that they when they are when they look at me, they're able to see a lot more than PTSD. And they're able to see right. the whole story. And I don't feel like there's just this unspoken thing. I can say, you know, here's the rest of the story. And when people have read this book, I feel like, well, you you understand me and you understand my motivations. And you're not like, Okay, so is he okay? Like, is he going to combust at any moment? You know, that's a that's a benefit to me personally. And also the other uh, on the other side of that, uh, and this actually for me personally was was uh, a really um, profound insight. And I because I guess because I'd never uh, thought about it this way. But when you were you were having a bad few days, you'd been in treatment for a while. You were doing much better because uh, I guess it was a few months in, and uh, you go to therapy, and your therapist is like, yeah you're not always going to have a good day. Nobody <laughs> always has good days. And like, oh my God, it's like really freeing uh, yeah. to understand that, you know, not think when you're, things aren't always going to be horrible, but things aren't always going to be great either. Uh, so I thought that was, that was sort of an important lesson uh, for those of us who have the tendency to beat ourselves up <laughs> if we're not operating at a hundred percent all the time. 
Yeah. Well, and you know, I had spent all those years playing whack-a-mole with my emotions, right? Because like the one thing I didn't want to do was be alone with myself and my memories and my right. thoughts. And so then once I had dealt with a lot of that stuff, uh, the idea of going backwards was just really scary, right? So then I go through like a few days where I just felt really low and and really depressed. And and so I go to Nick, my therapist, and I'm like thinking I'm sliding backwards, you know, is it all, is all, it's like sand going through your fingers. Is it all, right. and, and you're just, you know, you've worked so hard to build that up and it's so frightening. So yeah, when he was like, you know, I said, I think I'm depressed again. And he's like, sounds like you're just having a bad few days. And, right. and like, to me, the idea that I was allowed to do that was a revelation. And, yeah, and then to be able to say like, okay, yeah, today was not good. Well, I get another chance tomorrow. Um, that self-compassion was a skill that is is a super important skill that I gained in treatment. Yeah, and we could use, all use more of that, and I think we could use more of that collectively. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which you know, I I absolutely want to talk about your work with Veterans Community Project, but oh, I want to go back for a second to talk about something you said earlier about uh, having friends who are on the opposite end of the political spectrum. And um, I live in New York. Mm -hmm. And when I'm not in New York, I spend time in Massachusetts. <laughs> so, yeah. and I mean New York City. So I'm yeah. like in the two most liberal places on the planet. Right. I don't have to make those accommodations for anybody because there there isn't anybody mm -hmm. in my circle who's on right. the opposite end of the political spectrum. But it 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 reminds us how important it is to try to stake out those places where we can. Um, have dialogue and find commonality because I think we are at this very dangerous place where that's becoming less and less possible. And um, we see it. Uh, and as somebody who, who is a, a Democrat who's lived, not just lived, but succeeded politically in a very red state. Um, and, as somebody who's who's been in the military, who's valued uh, your military experience, and care obviously cares deeply about uh, the military and veterans and and where this country is going, um, are you surprised about um, the the rad radicalization we're seeing in certain elements in our society and and you know the news that we're it's a uh, like 20% of the people at the 20, uh, January 6th insurrection were active or former military. Uh, we see this list of uh, Oath Keeper membership being published and a lot of people on the right and in, in currently in politics, on the ballot in places in the military. Uh, does that surprise you? Um, do you do you feel, in especially in conversations with people who who are coming at everything from such a different place, do you, do you find that there are ways that we can uh, grapple with that and, and maybe turn that around? Because it does feel like it's a big part of uh, the problem we're facing. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say I'm surprised by it, but I'm really worried about it, right? right. Because obviously radicalization of, uh, I and I don't, I don't worry about it as much for the reasons that uh, you know, I think a lot of people worry about it because they're like, okay, if we have like, you know, violence, you know, it's obviously, and look, that is concerning, right? If you, yeah. if you're going to like the idea that 20% of the people at the insurrection had military experience is very concerning. I worry actually for a much more starkly upsetting reason, which is that if we end up in that sort of 
you know, protracted conflict, that sort of civil war, I worry about the institutions holding up. I worry about right. law enforcement holding up. I worry about the military holding up. Now, with that said, the reason that I don't find it surprising, it's twofold. One um, is that when you come out of the military, so th the first reason is a little bit lesser, and the second reason is, is a, to me, a, a bigger reason that doesn't surprise me. So the lesser reason is when you come out of the military, it is a disorienting experience. It is yep. a jarring experience, right? Like you, your identity is now like so confusing, right? Like yep. you, you, you were part of this thing and now you're not. And on top of that, everyone around you was part of the same thing. And now, like in a world where so few people serve and it's the longest period of, you know, consecutive time without mandatory service of any kind in our country's history, there's so few people you're going to go back to and be around who have also served so few people who it feels understand you. And so that's why really productive organizations that, that give you an opportunity to be part of something greater, stuff like Veterans Community Project, stuff like Team Rubicon, all that sort of thing. That's really important, you know, because in the vacuum when people are like looking for greater meaning, looking for something to belong to, they are susceptible to radicalization of any type, right? So that's part of why it doesn't surprise me. But the biggest reason it doesn't surprise me is because, you know, I get asked a lot, a different version of this question. I get, well, why are so many veterans, why are so many members of the military conservative, right? And to me, this is why it doesn't surprise me. You have to look at the demographics, right? Yeah. Like, it's not that people in the military are naturally conservative. It's that the military is a, is a workplace that is like 80% minimum male yep. and vastly disproportionately drawn from the South and the Midwest. Yep. Well, if you told me any workplace in the country was 80% dudes who were mostly from the Midwest and the South, I'd be like, that is a heavily Republican workforce, right? <laughs> That's right. So, that, so it's important, I think, for all of us to keep that in mind is that a lot of this is just... At this point in America, one of our problems is we kind of inherit our politics the way we sort of inherit our religion. That's right. And and so just the fact that in 2020, the majority of active duty and veteran uh, voters voted for Biden is a huge deal. It doesn't mean that they're now Democrats. It means the majority of a demographic that is overwhelmingly Republican chose not to vote uh, for Trump. So right. that's a huge, a huge deal. And that gives me reason for optimism. Yeah, I I think it should, and it um, I think it puts things in perspective too. You know, we hear about the worst, and and obviously having twenty percent of of people in its direction, that's that's not a good number. But at the same time, it's twenty percent of a not very big number. <laughs> so uh, I right, think as right, long right. as we're right as vigilant about it, but clearly uh, the 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 message is that we we. We fail at, at the beginning and at the end of the process in terms of mm -hmm. recruitment and in terms of uh, welcome, welcoming people back, and which we don't do. Uh, right. Because, again, a tiny percentage of people serve. I don't think um, America as a country uh, does much to help those of us who never have and never will understand what that means. Um, right. And, again, I think the... the uh, the failure to help people acclimate um, is it makes perfect sense in those terms that people would find any, any way to belong uh, to anything. Uh, so, you know, mm -hmm. we, we should have a little bit of compassion and understanding at least to a point and then 
take it upon ourselves as a society to to take some responsibility for that uh, mm -hmm. because you know people like you and others who serve sacrifice a lot and uh, come back and you know you can't even get an appointment at the VA for six months, uh, right? Well, and I think the other thing that in order to incentivize our society to do that, well, we have to recognize right now we have a tendency to talk about veterans issues through using language that is very charity oriented language, right? Like, right. like, you know, when, when employers talk about jobs that they, you know, veterans they've hired, they tend to talk about it kind of like the same way they talk about volunteer hours, right? Like, yep. look at all these people we helped. And what, one of the things we have to change is we have to do a better job, and you alluded to this, of helping people who haven't served understand what what the the enormous value that people have in our society, in our workplace. So, for instance, like, you know, this thing recently where, you know, and again, in their search to find ways to talk about stuff with school shootings that isn't about guns, where you have people proposing that we turn veterans into security guards at schools. And it's like, okay, actually, we can do stuff other than, like, stand a post, right? Yeah. Be, and, and that's the thing is, like, we need more civilian employers to understand that, um, you know, if you have spent four years in the army or in the marine corps for instance and you've done it you know during this period where we've had 20 years of war that means whatever your job was by the end of your four years you had probably 10 people reporting to you you're responsible for millions of dollars in really important equipment and you were like the you were the dad or mom away from home of those soldiers or those marines for instance you were their everything so I don't care what your job was in the military, you are ready. I would rather have you than, than a new Harvard MBA in a management position in my company. And if we can have more people understand that enormous value that veterans can bring to the workplace, to the community, we're going to have a lot easier time incorporating them. But the way to get there is for us to better, is to, is, as you said, to better understand what it is they did, what it is they faced. And how and have them feel as though they can be open and talk about those things without feeling like it's separating them from the rest of the community they're returning to. That's right. You, you know, people in that position have skills, have right. marketable skills. You're giving a job. If you're giving a job to a veteran, you're not doing them a favor. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're, you're actually doing quite, yourself a favor. That's right. And it's it needs to be seen in those terms. And I think part of the problem is. Uh, besides the lack of understanding is, is the ways in which um, veterans get treated uh, kind of gives people the wrong idea about what it means to be a veteran. And, um, you know, part of that is stereotypes, of course. Uh, and, you know, I think the worst, uh, worst we saw of that was during uh, in the aftermath of Vietnam. Um, but, you know, we still, we still need to do a better job of, um, dispelling those uh, negative stereotypes people have. Um, and I think in your, your experience um, with the VA uh, was very illuminating in that way. Uh, so I, I want to talk, I want you to talk a little bit about that, but also, you know, how you became involved in the veterans community project was, which is a, beautiful uh, organization and the role you now have uh, because I think you guys are doing really important work. Well, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Let me start with the first part, which is, um, you know, 
the portrayal of veterans, particularly combat veterans, uh, and, and frankly, just people with PTSD in general. I mean, one of the really tragic things about this is that veterans seem to be the only people in American society who have been given license to have PTSD, when in reality, like, it's not necessary to be a combat veteran to have PTSD, right? It is like, not. <laughs> it's it's it is not. very common. And, and so for me, uh, I went into therapy uh, and I, you know, st I, I started to get better right after a few months. And I remember saying to my therapist, like, did I even have PTSD? Like all, it seems like nobody gets better. And, you know, I, I'm making all this progress. Like I started to feel bad about it. I started to feel like it was not legitimate. And, and that's when he told, that's when he pulled out all these studies the VA had done and showed me that you're supposed to get better, that the vast majority of people who had committed to the program had done the homework they were given by their therapist, that they do get better. They, you know, you don't get cured, but you get to a point where right. PTSD is not disruptive to your life, right? And so I had not known that. And what occurred to me was the reason I had not known that was because I had virtually never seen it. You know, right. when we are exposed to the idea of PTSD, in our culture, it's usually on screen or sometimes, you know, in the news, but it is almost always what I refer to as PTSD porn. It's this right. voyeuristic, you know, uh, usually a combat vet who has just gone from beating their spouse to robbing a bank to using, you know, substances. And what we don't see hardly ever is what is way, way, way more common, which is people who have been to treatment, achieved post-traumatic growth, gone on with their life and are living, are living well. And, and a, that was one of my big motivations in writing the book was to demonstrate and model post-traumatic growth so that there was an example of that out there. Now, to get uh, to the other part of this, which I really appreciate, which is uh, about Veterans Community Project. Now, before I got to that point, got into therapy, when I first went to the VA, the VA had said to me uh, that, you know, it was probably going to be a few months before I could get enrolled. Now, six weeks before that, um, I had gone and... Uh, part of my campaign, I had toured this place in my hometown in Kansas City, Veterans Community Project, which was just incredible, right? It was doing stuff that, I, you know, as a politician, I've toured a lot of nonprofits. And it was rare that I was just knocked out by one, you know, right. but they were doing two things. They had a walk-in operation for any veteran where they were just hooking veterans up with any service they need with a super low barrier to entry, I mean, no barrier really to entry other than you're a veteran and with no bureaucracy. And that was saving lives. And then on top of that, what they were better known for is they had created this village of tiny houses with wraparound case management services. And they were they were transitioning homeless veterans into being fully functioning members of the community out in the community at a, at a success rate that nobody had ever seen. Right. So I, I go and I tour it and I go home that night uh, and I tell my wife, like, I wish I could quit everything and go work there. Right. But it wasn't like a realistic notion. I was a politician. Six weeks later, I go to the VA. I kind of hit rock bottom. They tell me it's going to be months before I can start. And I was about to announce the next day, I'm stepping back from everything to go to the VA to get help. And I called my buddy, Brian, who was the founder of Veterans Community Project and the CEO. And I'm like, I'm making this announcement tomorrow. I don't know what to do. So he's like, just come on down here. So six weeks after the VIP, you're going to be the mayor tour. Mm -hmm. I walked through the front doors of the outreach center, like thousands of other Kansas City vets. And just like other vets, they handled my paperwork for me. A week later, I had my first therapy appointment at the VA. So I became a huge believer in it. Um, after I start having some success in therapy, I start hanging around VCP, Veterans Community Project, all the time. And at that time, they had been so successful in Kansas City that all these other communities around the country were saying, hey, can you bring this to our town? And, you know, they had never really uh, 
envisioned going national, but they wanted to try to help more people. And I had created a national organization. So I'm giving them some right. advice. And finally, you know, Brian was like, look, man, you seem to be doing pretty well. You're hanging out here a lot. You're not working. You're figuring out what you want to do next. He's like, instead of giving us advice, like, how about you come on full time? So three years ago, I became the president of national expansion. And um, we have now expanded to the Denver area, uh, into the Sioux Falls area, St. Louis area, Oklahoma City. We're now going into the Milwaukee area. We've got more stuff planned for after that, more, more campuses to build. And um, all of the royalties uh, from an, all of my royalties from Invisible Storm go to Veterans Community Project. And it's the best civilian job I've ever had. That's amazing. So it's about uh, replicating and scaling mm -hmm. and <laughs> filling a void that I, I wish didn't exist. Uh, right. It would it would be great if um, we could figure out a way to um, make uh, our bureaucracy less complicated and put the vast resources uh, that should be at the disposal of that's to this kind of project. But the fact that you're doing the work is phenomenal. I mean, it, this has to be one of the uh, best, most uplifting transitions, uh, career transitions I've ever heard about. Um, <laughs> and very good for me, yeah. Yeah, right? And it, it, just, it just goes to show you, you never know what can mm -hmm. happen um, if, you, uh, if you face, face your demons and, and get help, uh, which you help take the... Um, What am I trying to say? You you help take the stigma out of that uh, in a way that needs to happen more often. Uh, you know, especially for for a vet. You know, mm -hmm. that that preconceived notion that vets are just tough guys and just should just take it. Well, I think yeah, I think the for me it it is about the stigma, and I but I also think the really rewarding part of writing the book and of, of the work I'm doing, but in this case, you know, mostly of the book is making it accessible, right? Because before I, you know, I had never been to therapy before. So to me, like, like anything you've never done before, it's, it just doesn't feel accessible. It, it's overwhelming the idea yep. of doing it. Right. And so it's, it's why like in the, in the whole third act of the book, one of the things I do is I literally went and got my, my records, like the VA records so that I could put my therapist's actual notes word for word yeah. in the book, because I wanted people to feel like they were in these therapy sessions with me and see the progression so that they could envision themselves in the same situation. And just sort of, I just sort of wanted to open up therapy and make it a, a lot less mysterious and feel a lot more accessible and doable. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's not the role in public service I originally envisioned for myself. Um, but at the same time, over the last four years, almost four years now, since I stepped away from, from uh, elected politics, electoral politics, anyway, I'm still an activist, but in that four years, I have unquestionably, not just, I mean, definitely done way more good for my family and for myself, but right. unquestionably had a much greater impact in that four years on the world, I think, than I did in the 10 years that I was in elected politics. And I don't even think it's close. Yeah. And, and again, you do, um, in the book, such a good job of, of helping people or uh, letting people into the experience, which for a lot of us is, is a foreign, scary experience of therapy. And particularly when, you know, uh, you're suffering from a disorder that is about, that requires facing feelings that you've 
in your entire life or your entire adulthood been told you shouldn't have not, mm-hmm. not even not feel, but you shouldn't have them at all. So right. again, I think it was an act of, of bravery. And, uh, I personally am incredibly grateful uh, to you for the book. Everybody should, uh, get it and read it one because it's powerful and it will, whether you suffer from PTSD, you know, somebody who do does, and you probably know somebody who does, uh, it's, it's really, um, extraordinary. It's also funny. It's a great read. I mean, it's incredibly well-written. It's a good story. And, um, you know, again, Diana's uh, contribution is, is one of the, the best parts of it as well. Um, but you buy it and, all of the proceeds are are going to VCP, which is phenomenal. And uh, Jason Kander, I'm really grateful that you uh, spent t- so much time with me today. And I'm also incredibly grateful for all of your work. Uh, keep it up and keep us posted on what comes next. I, I will. And Mary, thank you for everything you do and uh, for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation and I, and I appreciate it very much. All right. Thanks so much, Jason. Take care. You too. I, I hope you found that as as uh, interesting and important as as I did. I think uh, Jason is he's a great guy, but also the work he's doing and uh, the courage he's shown and and sharing his story is uh, there quite something. So um, thank you again to Jason Kender for for being here tonight, and of course thank you to all of you. Uh, I so appreciate your coming on the show and, and uh, not coming on the show. That would be, uh, that would be crowded, but coming to see the show and all of your comments and all of your support. uh, It's, it's always a wonderful thing to see. So we're going to leave it there for tonight. Uh, We will of course be back next Tuesday at 12 PM Eastern 9 AM Pacific for the strategy sessions uh, that's at youtube.com slash politicon and we'll be back next next thursday uh with an interview with david corn who's just coming out with a new book that is an excellent fascinating read so uh it will be great to catch up with david uh so that is next thursday at 7 p.m eastern 4 p.m. Pacific, also at youtube.com slash Politicon. And while you're on Politicon's YouTube page, be sure to subscribe to Politicon. It doesn't cost anything. It just, you know, it the the bigger those subscription numbers are, the the more people will be able to find the show. Uh, and also like, like the episode, leave a comment, and don't forget to ring the bell because that way you will be sure to get any uh, videos, episodes, and extra quick hits videos that I'm doing. Uh, you'll be sure to get them uh, as soon as they drop. And of course, you can listen to the show in podcast form on Apple or wherever you get your, your podcasts. And uh, if you could give the show a five-star review, that would be great because it really, really does help other people find the show. And, you know, it's crunch time. We are less than seven weeks away. Not seven. uh, I think we're less than nine weeks away. I think it's 60 days or something until the election. So we really, really are trying to get the word out and uh, help as many people as possible hear the voices uh, of people who come onto the show. 
So uh, we will see you next Tuesday. And in the meantime, have a great weekend. Stay safe and be kind. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.